Tick, tock, tick, tock. This is your James Bond moment. And I was just thinking, I am so dead. True Spies, with me, Hayley Atwell, wherever you get your podcasts. This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. They said, look, you know, we want you to come and train our guys. I had familiarity with weapons, section level tactics, and this was definitely something that both Fahim and Zakaria were interested in. As soon as he tells me this and shows me the map and whatever, I say, okay, hold on, brother. You stop right now. I don't know who's around and I don't want to talk in public, but let's you and I meet day after tomorrow or something. And let's talk about this. Like, just really like, are you guys serious about this? And, you know, I got into my car and I left. And I remember calling my controller and saying, okay, this guy, this guy is a time bomb waiting to go off. From Foreign Policy and Spyscape, welcome to iSpy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week, we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, Mubin Sheikh posed as a Muslim extremist to nab Canadians who plan to stage large-scale attacks on government targets. Sheikh grew up in Toronto and became radicalized during a trip to Pakistan, but the attacks of 9-11 changed his outlook. In 2004, he agreed to go undercover for Canadian authorities, a decision that would isolate him from his community. The group he infiltrated would come to be known as the Toronto 18. Well, the story of how this starts is pretty much in uh, early 2004. I opened the newspaper actually that day and I can see on the front page this guy named Momin Kawaja has been arrested on terrorism charges. And Momin Kawaja is the first terrorism arrest post 9-11 in Canada under the newly minted terrorism laws. He was arrested in connection with the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot and as i'm looking at this guy on the front page i realize that this is momin kawaja from the quran school i used to go to as a child and immediately recalled him and i and his brothers basically playing with hot wheels cars you know in their apartment building in which we all lived together As I was reading through that article, I saw a reference to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and basically went right to, uh, remember those things called phone books? Well, I went right to the back of the phone book and saw CSIS, uh, Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and it said Toronto Region, and I just called them. And I said, hey, I'm looking in the newspaper and I see this guy Momin Kawaja, I used to know him. I mean, I know the family. This must be a mistake. That was my initial reaction and comment to them. What I wasn't thinking of at the time, of course, is, you know, how people change over the years. And 
whenever we do see friends from the old days, we remember them as they were in the old days and not really, you know, taking into account what's changed in their lives since. When they heard me calling in, uh, he basically said, look, I'm going to get back to you with somebody from the service and arrange a meeting in public somewhere. And would you be willing to do that? And so that one day, just looking at that newspaper is what would set things into action. The first meeting was in a very public place. <laughs> you know, it was a donut shop, basically, right? Up in Canada, anyway, we have... Uh, well, the joke is it's the ubiquitous CSIS office, and it's the Tim Hortons coffee shop. So I arrived early, and I can see the very government-looking car, <laughs> you know, pull into the parking spot. And sorry to say, but, I mean... You know, typical white dude stepping out of the government-looking car in his government-looking suit, <laughs> walking towards the donut shop. And, and you know, this is not the kind of place that somebody who dresses like that, who looks like that, would be coming to normally. So he came in, he introduced himself to me. Obviously, he would have known what I looked like. And we started chatting. Well, we were chatting about me mostly, and he just wanted to get a feel of who I was and, you know, the background that I had come from and how I was explaining that background. And I could see the way his eyes were darting up and down and, you know, trying to make sense of me, trying to read me uh, and profiling me, you know, for whatever his purposes were. We sat for about an hour and a half, basically went through my life story with him, and then we moved on to the next phase after that. Well, here's what I told him about my life. You know, I'm, I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada, from Indian parents, growing up in a very strict household. You know, the culture is pulling me one way, the society is pulling me another way. And what ended up happening is, I decided I need to get religious. And so I would end up in an immersion program in India and Pakistan in the middle of 1995, where I would have a chance encounter with the Taliban, which would basically send me down this path of becoming interested in this jihadi identity and jihadi cause. I kept that up for a number of years, joining the Salafists, becoming increasingly radicalized, thinking about going to fight in Chechnya. But then 9-11 happened, and that's what really made me reconsider my worldview. I would end up going to Syria and spending two years there studying Arabic and Islamic studies and actually going through a full period of de-radicalization. Well, you know, in terms of what he wanted from me, he did actually make it very clear. He said, basically, look, we would like for you to work for us. I like the way that you think. And basically, look, we don't have the time or energy to be chasing ghosts. We want good information, good intelligence, and honest information and honest intelligence. And he said to me that he felt that because I was able to straddle both worlds, that is the, you know, overtly Muslim observant world and the Canadian identity world, he thought 
I could do that. He thought that my assessments would be honest and objective because I could appreciate the interests of both sides. But more importantly, I knew that my loyalties, you know, lay with my country before it did my, you know, religious community or whatever. And that agent became my primary controller. That was JJ, yes. AJ, JJ, you you all look the same to me. (laughs) Initially, it began online. And so it was password-protected chat forums in which I was expected to get entry into. And you could only get entry into that if you were to physically go to a particular mosque and talk to a specific guy and then he would give you on a piece of paper the password for that closed chat room. And so I knew that guy, of course, already. And so when I went to see him, of course, asking for the password, uh, he was all smiles. You know, I'm not surprised to see you here. So I got the password, I went back, and I was now on this password-protected chat forum. And my job here was to basically get a lay of the land, understand and communicate what's happening in this chat room, who are the main players, what kinds of techniques are they using to recruit individuals, and what are the mechanisms they're using to bring someone from online into the real world. To get somebody to tell you these things to begin with, especially in an anonymous forum like that, is really to have a handle on the ideology and to basically talk the talk. And it becomes very technical, religious discussions on aqidah, you know, like grounds of belief. And, you know, how you even word your statements so that They are seen to be authentic and pure because authenticity is authority in this context. There's going to be religious scripture, first and foremost. They're going to be quoting the Quran. Um, They're going to be quoting the hadith of the Prophet, you know, austere, literalist reading of the Islamic sources. My handle was uh, Stealth Fighter, Muslim Stealth Fighter. I had two other accounts to kind of make like we were three different people, you know, to interact with the different accounts to show people who were observing the forum, this is how I act. Or if one of my alter accounts would try to push back and give a counter, you know, to their ideology, I would have to jump in and show that, no, I can defend and I can even counter the counter. And so this is a tactic that would obviously need to be used to show them that this account and this person behind the account was a legitimate actor. Eventually, as I continue to do more projects for the service, one day late in November 2005, they tell me, listen, here are some guys. Here's the dossier. They gave me the envelope. I see the faces of these individuals. Find out what these guys are about. Tell us what they're up to. I was never given specific information in, you know, for example, oh, we know these guys are doing X. So we want you to find out whatever. It was always, here are some guys. 
independent eyes and ears verification. So I was basically invited to an event which was taking place at the Taj Banquet Hall. It was a Muslim activist basically supporting Muslim prisoners and Muslim prisoner rights. So I attend. Uh, I sat at the table and one guy walks in, right? Look, random looking guy. He's got a a shmog covering his face and walks right over to me and sits right next to me and basically says, oh, can I sit here? And he takes his shmog off and it's Zakaria Mara from the dossier. So I did feel that tingling in my stomach, the butterflies, whatever. So of course, a whole bunch of them came in. They looked like they did from their photos, came over. Zakaria got up. I took this as an opportunity for them to kind of maybe think that he had recruited me. The ringleaders here were Fahim Ahmed and Zakaria Amara. So anyways, there's some chit chat, back and forth banter uh, while the presentation's going on. But at the end of it, we, we all went outside. So I, you know, I remember going to my, my van. I drive basically a soccer dad van. And I open the cargo door, the side sliding door, and a baseball bat falls out of the van. And so they, they chuckle and they say, oh, you have a, you're playing baseball in winter? Uh, because this is, of course, November in Canada and it's very winter. And I said, no, no, this is my alarm system. If somebody alarms me, I give them the system. Funny joke. They chuckle a bit. But what I'm telling them is I'm ready to use violence. I'm making myself more recruitable, more, uh, you know, to the group. And then I actually, I say to them, yeah, you know, um, I tried to go to Yemen, but CSIS, you know, they, they didn't let me or they, they came to talk to me about why I wanted to go travel, blah, blah, blah. And so screw them. And so Fahim says, you know, if the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, came to my house, they know what I would do and then makes a shooting gesture. And then I pull out my wallet and I pull out my possession and acquisition license that I have for restricted and non-restricted firearms. The possession and acquisition license permits me to buy firearms and their associated ammunitions. And Zakaria and Fahim see that and their eyes widen. Alhamdulillah, you know, all praise is due to Allah that he sends people like this to us. You know, and I'm just thinking, brother, you know, it ain't Allah who sent me, you know. <laughs> and he says, okay, brother, come to the side over here. And then so we start walking over to the side of the building. And he hugs me and I even make the joke. I said, brother, you know, is there something in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? And of course, there was something in his pocket. And he reached his hand into his, you know, left uh, breast pocket, inside pocket. Magazine release, pulls out the magazine. You can hear the metal sliding against the metal coming out. And produces to me a loaded magazine of a Glock 14 with quote-unquote cop killer bullets. So he says to me, Fahim says, you know, oh, I've been to Iraq. And the Mujahideen there say, you should, you know, stay in Canada and, and hit the enemy from the inside so this is why we have this group of guys who you know we want to do something and I even remember saying I'm like yeah brother you know everybody talks about doing something let's all talk let's all talk and then he says no brother we're not talk we're real in fact we have a training camp that we're having in the next few weeks and the guy pulls out a map of Ontario north of Toronto area 
and opens up the map and just very quickly and generally points to an area on that map and says it's here and they said look we have guys coming you know blah 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 you know we want you to come and train our guys because i had told them about you know some of the army cadet stuff i spent five years in the cadets i was a actually a rifle instructor at the uh, staff training college i had familiarity with weapons section level tactics and this was definitely something that both fahim and zakaria were interested in as soon as he tells me this and shows me the map and whatever I say, okay, hold on, brother. You stop right now. I don't know who's around, and I don't want to talk in public, but let's you and I meet day after tomorrow or something, and let's talk about this. Like, just really, like, are you guys serious about this? And, you know, I got into my car, and I left. And I remember calling my controller and saying, okay, this guy, this guy is a time bomb waiting to go off. These are guys that would end up becoming the so-called Toronto 18. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy and Spyscape. We'll be right back. True Spies is the ultimate debrief on the stories only spies can tell. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Listen now at spyscape.com forward slash I spy. Welcome back to I Spy. We return to Mubin Sheikh and his story of the Toronto 18. The training camp was basically just a corner where there's somebody's got all this land out there. And these guys just basically found on a map and decided this is where they were going to have, you know, their their training camp. So we initially got there, set up camp, um, tried to, you know, get a lay of the land to prepare for others who were going to come up. We set up an obstacle course, which, you know, the the other trainer and I knew that we were going to put these guys through because we wanted to, you know, make it like a training camp. But now me, the undercover, had to keep in mind, well, I can't give them skills by which they can actually do some of the things they want to do. I have to make it seem like it's military, but at the same time, keep it calm. So we ran it like an obstacle course. We ran it like a training camp. Uh, There were the days, you know, we would be reading or listening to, for example, a famous American jihadist, Anwar al-Awlaki the Yemeni-American who was killed in drone strike. And we would sit and listen to his lectures in the tent. It was, you know, on a computer by CD. And this was to indoctrinate people, to indoctrinate these young guys. And so we would listen to it in the first group of guys that went up. We would listen to it again with the second group that would eventually come up a few days later. Some of the stuff that we would look at while we were at the camp also included videos of bombings that were taking place in Iraq during the U.S. war, watching IED videos, watching the Russian Hell series, which was another CD-based collection of Wahhabists in Chechnya who were conducting ambush attacks and convoy attacks on Russian forces. We basically had a jihadi camping trip. We sat around the fire 
while it's freezing outside and have congregational prayers. I'm the trainer, right? And I have to be careful not to incite them, but also I have to get intelligence from them. So I put to them, brothers, what brought you here? What did you learn while you were here? And what do you plan on doing when you go back? Certainly within the group, there were individuals who were maybe not as militant even. Contrary from this being like 18 guys who are hardcore Al-Qaeda suicide bombers, not at all. Not at all. You know, you could say three or four were hardcore guys. And the rest, you know, the, uh, let's say at the lower end of the spectrum, you had four young teenagers, okay? And they were just like sloppy teenagers at camp. It was like funny to see, you know, uh, one of them, his, the glue in his shoes had melted because his feet were too close to the fire. You know, some of them didn't even know that this was going to be this kind of training camp or attempt at a training camp. But certainly in the minds of Fahim and Zakaria, the purpose of this was to commit acts of violence, specific acts of violence in the country. So our training lasted, I think it was 12 days in total. I actually spent my wedding anniversary out in the woods with these guys camping. So... In the course of developing the, this rapport with Fahim, we would end up discussing basically what this guy's plans were. And he had these grandiose plans, really, in hindsight, about attacking the nuclear facility in Ontario, Canada. And in fact, one of the guys was studying aviation and kind of thought that he could fly a plane into the nuclear power station. Now, of course, it was more aspirational than anything else. I mean... I'm sure people have thought that, especially terrorists, I mean, have thought, hey, maybe, you know, given the success of 9-11, so to speak, maybe we could do the same thing here with um, maybe a smaller plane, something. But this was one of their main targets, the Pickering Power Station. And others included military bases, the CSIS building, which is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. There were other discussions too, though. Like, for example, we talked about potentially car bombs going off in the city center to distract and to draw emergency services and first responders to that initial scene. And then we then use that as, as a cover to then storm the parliament building. But again, it was, it was you know, more aspirational than realistic, I think. One of the things I did to you know, build that bond to show them that I'm bringing them into you know, the privacy of my life was invite Fahim and Zakaria themselves to my house. And my kids were there. We were eating a meal together. And this was actually something that people said, well, like you, you don't do that, right? Like you don't bring people to your house, whatever. But, you know, we're sitting there, we're eating. You know, one of my kids is taking a nap just on the side and they're armed. They have a nine millimeter pistol with them. And while we're eating and, you know, he, he basically pulls it out and he says, hey, look, you know, like, so, you know, I don't know if it was like to put it down to basically to show off and say, hey, look, you know, I'm a badass. But he basically says, no, 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 look, it's not loaded. And I took it from him and I slid the slide back to reveal the breach. And I could see that it was loaded, you know, and the safety was not even on. So it just showed me that these guys were careless. Right? And it was because they were amateur. But again, amateur does not mean not dangerous. 
by the time we hit the new year, right, this is early 2005, I remember at the end of January, we had an initial meeting and we being myself, Fahim Ahmed and Zakaria Amara. And um, Zakaria Amara had been registered in a college level course on fire systems management or fire systems technician and used his knowledge to make a bomb detonator. Now, one night, we, it was the middle of the night, we went out and met together. Uh, and he had a plastic bag, and out of the bag, he pulled out this, what looked to be some kind of electronic device. It was sitting on, you know, some kind of circuit board. He then told us, this is a detonator, right? I've made a fully functioning detonator. So that was the indication that this was now moving beyond just aspirational. Maybe we weren't able to fulfill the dream goals that we had, but even if we were to hit two, three, four notches below the ideal attack, it would still have been a deadly attack. You know, for sure, I'm filled with this dilemma of how serious are they? You know, how aspirational is it? How realistic is it? Are these just a bunch of guys talking tough or are they actually on a path that I can reasonably see the end result of this is death and destruction in the public space. And certainly I saw that and that's the assumption that I had to continue operating on the basis of. So eventually what happens is what Zakaria does is he takes one of the guys that Fahim has been working with and they decide that they are going to escalate and make this fertilizer bomb an ammonium nitrate based bomb and what Zakaria does is he creates this student farmers group you know and said basically listen we're student farmers and that's going to be our cover for why we need three tons of ammonium nitrate so they got some fake shirts that said student farmers on it they got business cards drawn up and they decide let's order three tons of ammonium nitrate we're going to rent uh, two rental trucks and drive the truck bombs to their desired targets. One was the security intelligence building. One was the stock exchange because one of the guys involved in the plot wanted to make fraudulent investments and basically capitalize off of those investments after the attack. And the third spot was actually a Canadian forces base where Canadian forces repatriate our fallen soldiers and so the, the psychology here would have been, you know, we're killing your guys a second time. Now, keep in mind that these guys had learned from the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot when the London police switched the materials that they had in the storage unit. So what these guys did, they put candle wax on the doors of the storage unit to be able to see if anyone had actually come in and, and broken in. So after setting up their storage unit, a truck that was being driven by an undercover backed up basically to deliver what they thought was ammonium nitrate. I believe it was baking soda. No, it was kitty litter, of course, because you're not going to have one ton of ammonium nitrate out in the public space, you know, for a sting operation. That's that's unacceptable, of course. So, so bags of kitty litter were delivered to these guys, two of them, Saad Gaya and Saad Khalid, were ready to unload the material, and they did. And they were putting it in their boxes, 
and as they came out of the unit, they were engaged and arrested by the emergency response team of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So the the day of the arrest is really when the reality of what I've gotten myself into just smacks me in the face. I was basically with my family, my wife and my children. Uh, we were taken to basically a safe house, if you will, and watching the news on TV. And I see this breaking news. There's been arrest, terrorism related, dot, dot, dot. And that's when I saw Fahim Ahmad, some of the other guys. And I realized, okay, this is it. This is them. And it's on. And, you know, I was filled with a sense of dread. I was filled with sadness, with anxiety, apprehension, doubt. I mean, just just swarmed, if you will, with all kinds of emotions and thoughts. And, you know, it would take me a long, long time, you know, before I could shake those feelings. You know, in terms of how the community responded, I guess I should not have been surprised, but uh, certainly I was surprised. The community totally flipped out, could not believe that there were these guys up to no good. But, you know, unfortunately for me, the community totally cut me off. I became ostracized overnight as soon as it became known that I was the person involved. What they've told themselves, and this is a a narrative that still, unfortunately, permeates the Muslim community, and that is that the mere presence of an undercover equals entrapment. And, you know, here I am struggling with myself the whole time that I'm operational, second-guessing myself, asking God if I'm doing the right thing, praying to God that please help me make the right decision, so on and so on. And now the community is like, nope, it's your fault. You set them up. You put them up to it. And you're the bad guy. And that was unfortunately a label that stuck to me for for many years afterwards. I became just a mess mentally, psychologically, emotionally. You know, now, of course, in hindsight, I can look back and kind of say that I think it was because my identity, my self-worth was directly relative to my position in the community. And now when that community excommunicates you and basically outgroups you, it's a complete loss of identity. I don't know who I am anymore. I started to question my faith. I fell back into, you know, some old bad crowds, if you will, began to self-medicate with drugs, with drinking. You know, I didn't drink. Drinking was an, is anathema in the Muslim faith. But, you know, I had a teenage life and I had experienced those things. I knew what it was, right? Like that, that crutch and that band-aid, if you will. It just tore me apart inside. I remember looking at myself in the mirror telling myself, look at you, you know, they're mocking you, they're laughing at you. If you fall and you lose, you know, everything goes to waste. And so I just kept reinforcing myself and and motivating myself. I did also need to take a trip to Mecca and Medina. You know, I cried my face off to God, 
poured my heart out trying to release all these emotions that I had inside me and you know what I came back invigorated you know I felt so much stronger so much better and then the court you know the prosecution begins there were five legal hearings in total over four years from 2006 all the way to 2010 going to court being put at the front of the courtroom for everyone to you know try to get their pound of flesh from me so to speak and they tried but you know by the glory of God <laughs> they failed and I succeeded so in the end of the 18 that were arrested some of them got off some of them pled guilty and were incarcerated and others were found guilty and were sentenced to varying degrees of years in prison Regarding Fahim, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. So was Zakaria Amara. Mubin Sheikh lives in Toronto, Canada. He described his experience as a clandestine operative in the book Undercover Jihadi, written with Anne Speckhard. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs, Amy McKinnon, and Dan Haverty helped produce today's show. The interview with Shake was conducted by Dan Efron. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Next week on the show, Sarah Carlson served as a counter-terrorism analyst at the U.S. mission in Libya until the militias closed in. The scariest part is that there was no reinforcements. Like, we were entirely on our own. That's very different from, like, Iraq or Afghanistan, where a huge number of U.S. military there, at least when I was in Iraq. But in Libya, the closest help was, you know, across the Mediterranean or on a ship in the Mediterranean. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. As I was saying, True Spies is a new podcast in which real spies tell us about their role in the espionage operations that changed history. True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, meet the people who navigate this secret world. It was going to be a massacre. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Look for True Spies wherever you get your podcasts.